Peace to you. Welcome back to The Naked Truth, and thank you for joining me. It's a weekday, so we're going to pick up where we left off in the Old Testament, as we call it, the book of 2 Kings. We're up to chapter 12. If you want to read along with me, let's begin. Uh, and if you want to read along with me, by the way, and don't have a Bible handy, I'm using, as usual, the blueletterbible.org website uh, and the New King James Version of the Bible if you want to read along there and don't have a hard copy. So let's begin. Verse 1. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. So the people were talking about Jehu is the king of the kingdom called Israel. Jehoash is the new king of the kingdom called Judah. At this point in the Bible, the group, the tribes of Israel are divided into two kingdoms. It's going to be reunited um, by the time Jesus' ministry had, takes place in the Bible, even though thumping, Bible thumping preachers nowadays will tell you it hasn't happened yet. It's absolutely already happened. It happened even before Jesus' time because all of the tribes, wherever they were from, whichever they were of, were all just referred to as Jews commonly, whether they're in the 12, whether they're in the kingdom of Israel or from the kingdom of Judah, they're all just referred to as Jews, just like in modern times. So the stick, as it's called, has been reunited at some point. But at this point, there's still two kingdoms. So Jehu is the king of Israel and Jehoash, and as always, please forgive me if I mispronounce any of these, is the king of um, Judah, Judea. Uh, in Jerusalem, that's the capital city, the same way Washington, D.C. is the capital city of the United States. Um, and Jehoiada is the priest, so that's the religious arm. And like we read before, religion and politics work together to herd the people, and that's what's happening. Verse 2, Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. So um, the narrator here of the book of Second Kings, unnamed who it is, but they're letting us know uh, Jehoash's actions were considered righteous uh, by the Lord. And the Lord here, I'm pretty sure, is being translated from the name or word um, Jehovah. Let me just check. I'm guessing it is, since you see Jehoash and Jehu, the, a lot of the names include the, uh, the name of the deity that's being worshipped. Um, throughout, whether it's um, these Jehoash or Jehoiada, or at some point it becomes the Ayahs, the Jeremiahs, and Micaiahs, and the, and that's because it includes the Yah at the end of it, which is the name of the shortened version of the name, or at least another version of the name, uh, Jehovah or Yehovah, depending on how you want to pronounce it or how you see it spoken. But it, that's, um, their names are included into the names of the different kings along the way. The same way people in modern times name their children after different celebrities or, enti or I wouldn't say entities, although some people do. Um, it's the same thing. Um, so that's who we're talking about. And it's saying here that he was faithful all the time that the religion was on his back, keeping him on the straight and narrow. Verse 3, but... The high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed to burn incense on the high places. So how faithful is it if it, it, it 
It's like lukewarm. You're faithful with one. He's faithful with one thing, following what the high priest is telling him to do. But at the same time, the people, and probably him included, are still worshiping other entities, other deities. That's what those high places are for. And making sacrifices, generally animal sacrifices, killing animals and shedding their blood as a devotion, dedication to those different entities and deities that are worshipped throughout the Bible. But that's where the people are at at this point. And it seems like the narrator is saying that he was a good king, but he still in, in, um, included the sacrilege, that's what it would be considered, of idolatry, of worshipping other entities, of other religions being present in their form of worship. Verse 4, and Jehoash said to the priest, all the money of the dedicated gifts that are brought into the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord. So now he's talking about the money. Like uh, I was saying earlier, religion and politics work together to hurt the people. And one of the main ways that we've said, read it again and again, is they do this uh, law enforcement tell you what the law is. If you break it, you have to pay penalties, fines, if you're cited for them. And then those fines and penalties, they don't go back to the community to make it easier on the people so that they don't have to commit those crimes, like stealing food to eat or trespassing on um, a park to have some place to sleep or shelter. They don't, they don't do that any more than they do in modern times. But they collect those fines and fees and citations to enrich themselves just like they do in modern times. And that's what is happening here. But so he's getting down to the nitty gritty, talking about what's, what they're going to do with the money that they raise. Verse five, let the priests take it themselves, each from his constituency, and let them repair the damages of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found. So this is sort of a novel idea. He's telling the priests to use the funds for um, the public good, but not quite exactly. He's telling them to use the funds that people have donated, have been you know, cited and fined for to give all the money they've collected. He's saying use that for repairing the uh, temple. And so truly, that's also to their benefit too, because they weren't given a land allotment they're enriched off of the different uh, offerings that the um, congregation, the population make. And so that's what he's telling them to do. Use those funds to repair the temple. Verse 6, Now it was so by the 23rd year of King Jehoash that the priests had not repaired the damages of the temple. So <laughs> that time has passed. It doesn't say exactly how long, but he's saying the 23rd year of his um, of his um authority, his um, kingdom, his reign, um, they still hadn't done it. So you don't think that they hadn't been collecting those fines and fees and money all along. I'm almost certain they did. Uh, they just didn't use it for what he told them to. Any more than the church does in modern times in raising millions, if not billions, for sure billions, maybe even more, um, but not to uh, house unhoused people, not to feed the hungry, not for, uh, not for, um, um, what's the other major thing? Healthcare, taking care of people who are sick. Not for any of that. They use it to enrich themselves and make sure they're in comfortable surroundings. And that's really what's happening here. 
the temple's going to be repaired with the people's money that they've donated. Uh, but even then, it's really just benefiting the priests because it's not like the people are living in the temple, whereas the priests almost, well, they have some of their own properties that they're, they've they been enriched with also. Um, but their job, their central point is in the temple. So, of course, it would behoove them to make the temple comfortable. Verse 7, so King Jehoash called Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and said to them, why have you not repaired the damages of the temple? Now, therefore, do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for repairing the damages of the temple. So now we have the answer there. They have still been collecting the money from the people. Uh, they just haven't been using it for what it was uh, designed for or dedicated for. Um, I mean, still they're collecting the money. Verse 8, and the priests agreed that they would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. So isn't that something? Talk about uppity. They're not only uh, collected the fees already and they've decided, well, we're, we're going to keep the money. We're not going to give that away, um, but we're not going to collect any more money. But we're also not going to use it for the temple either. How about that? So it's sort of a conflict between religion and politics. Which one's going to win? Verse 9, then Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, and set it beside. Um, sorry, page skip. Then Jehoiada the priest took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, and set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. And the priest who kept the door put there all the money brought into the house of the Lord. So the priest, Jehoiada, the religious leader, um, has decided, okay, well, the priests are unwilling to collect the money, uh, unwilling to use the money they've already collected for repairs to the temple. So we'll go with plan C and just set up a, a basket, a place, a donation box for people. Whenever they enter, they can drop the money in there. Now, um, it sounds like that would be a nice way to collect Um free will offerings, but since it's set there at the door, it seems to me it would be almost more like an admission fee. Um, it's right there as soon as you get into the house of the Lord. So if you walk past it without dropping anything in it, it would almost certainly catch people's attention when they don't hear the change clanking around inside of it. Maybe they'd look to see if you dropped some paper money in there, but they didn't have paper money back then that we know of. So it seems to me it's really just an admission fee that they've set up now. So let people know if you're coming to the temple, make sure you drop off your money right there as soon as you come in. Um, but maybe it wasn't like that. Let's see. Um, verse 10. So it was whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest that the king's scribe and the high priest came up and put it in, the, in bags and counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. So it will, it worked. They set up a donation box uh, where you first come in and now it's working. It's overflowing with donations of people who show up to the house of the Lord, to the temple, to make sure they drop something in that um, donation box and they've collected plenty. It's overrun with money. Verse 11, then they gave the money which had been appointed into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord and they paid it out to the carpenters and builders who worked on the house of the Lord. So when I was a kid going to church, they'd have things like uh, the building fund. 
or the um, and other different offerings that would be made. I guess this is the equivalent of that. People giving to their money to the religion so that the religion can be enhanced, including by its buildings. So that's what they're doing. And it's being successful. Like I said in a previous reading, we saw that when that um, uh, church uh, burned down during the pandemic. In one day, they raised a billion dollars worldwide to help repair it. Um, it seems like it's righteous. It seems like it's good. So you consider that they don't do the same thing for the unhoused, for the poor, for the needy, for the uh, starving, the hungry. They don't do any of that. They don't raise money for that. But they raised it for that building just like that. Uh, not much has changed. Verse 12. And to masons and stonecutters and for buying timber and hewing stone to repair the damage of the house of the Lord and for all that was paid out to repair the temple. So the narrator here is letting us know that's where the money went for all those repairs. But now that I think about it, some of those people who did some of the repairs on the temple, they didn't dedicate their time, their effort, their surplus of supplies that helped take care of it. Almost certainly they, certainly they probably did. So did all of these dollars, this money really go to the repair of the temple? I doubt it. Any more than that billion goes to the repair of the church in modern times, since it was almost certainly insured, so they really didn't even need to actually raise any money for it, I'm guessing. I couldn't imagine an ancient building like that not being insured, but maybe it was. But what we're reading on now, the uh, apparently the builders and stonecutters didn't just dedicate their energy to the temple. They had to get paid to do it, if we're to believe the narrative that that's what the money collected was used for. I find it highly suspect, but maybe it was. Verse 13, however, there were not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, tremors, uh, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, any articles of gold or articles of silver from the money through uh, brought into the house of the Lord. So they used the, um, the donations to make all these different things, the construction of the temple, and also some of the supplies that they would use in their religious services. But what they didn't use it for was anything gold or silver. They didn't use it for that. Verse 14, but they gave that to the workmen and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. So they're saying that's where the money went. They gave it to the workmen and they repaired the house of the Lord. Now, again, I find, kind of find it hard to believe that that's where all the money went, since almost certainly some of those same workmen were of the same religion, so wouldn't they almost certainly donate their time, their equipment, their knowledge? It seems like they would, especially since that's basically how it was ordered when they began to build it in the first. Before they even began to build it, they were told to choose certain people to do certain things, including making the curtains and making... Um, the building itself, all those different things, uh, with no mention of them being paid for it. So it, it seems, again, highly suspect that now all of a sudden they're doing it and only doing it for the money, or they're doing it and getting paid for it, and that there's not an abundance of people willing to do it for free and donate their time. But it's hard to read, so let's keep reading. Verse 15, moreover, they did not require an account. There you go. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men into whose hand they delivered the money to be paid to work them, for they dealt truth faithfully. So now the narrator is letting us know that's where the fly got in the soup. They didn't keep track of the money any more than you see in modern times 
the defense spending in America, almost up to a billion dollars every year, and yet hundreds of millions go unaccounted for missing, and uh, still the budget gets, keeps getting raised every single year, whether it's a Democrat or Republican in office, whether it's Democrats or Republicans controlling the House and the Senate. It still gets raised every single year. Hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions go missing, never accounted for, and yet they still just keep getting more money. Uh, similarly, we're reading here. They were given all this money. They didn't require any account of it. So they almost certainly pocketed, will be nice and say some of it. Um, and the rest of it, they didn't have to bother to give an accounting for because they were considered faithful. The same way uh, people in uniform are considered faithful, even though they've been shown again and again um, to shoot people in the back. Uh, or to choke people to death, to lean on someone's neck until they die, killing them, while the others who are paid to enforce the law, paid to protect and serve, stand around and do nothing, and takes years for them to even face consequences for that. It's nonsensical, and it's ridiculous to believe that um, just because they're considered faithful, that all the money was used for faithful purposes, but it is, again, how it reads, or just reading. Verse 16, the money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priests. So the priests were getting their money already. They're getting broke off the other offering monies as it is. I suppose that would help um, discourage the corruption of taking even the building offering money. But you've seen that doesn't work in real life. That doesn't work in practice uh, in politics. Look at the politicians, the Senate, the House. Many of them are millionaires. It's ridiculous. Millionaires, but they're in a public service position, uh, but only they're enriching themselves and their constituency, whereas it's supposed to be the public good that's at hand. Uh, but all of that could be fixed if there were term limits. I mean, really could fix a whole lot of that instead of letting somebody stay in power decades to corrupt the system and make sure it stays corrupt which is actually the, um, the um, feature, not the flaw, it seems, of the whole system that goes on in America and probably around the world and especially uses religion to pull it off. Verse 17, Haziel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gab and took it. Then Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. So um, the neighboring country, Syria, same Syria in modern times, um, is fighting against the area called Gath, where we've read previously they have literal, actual giants there. But it, apparently they were able to defeat them and take that land, and now they're eyeing Jerusalem. That's the kingdom of Judah to um, take it too. Verse 18, And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that his fathers, Jehoshaphat and Jehoram, and Ahaziah, kings of Judah, had dedicated and his own sacred things, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and in the king's house, and sent them to Hazael, king of Syria. Then he went away from Jerusalem. So um, they got shook down. The, they were afraid that Syria would attack them, so he took all the gold that he could, his own and his father's, in the kingdom, and gave it to the Syrians. Um, as a tribute, as uh, the same way you would if you were occupying a land, an area and making them abide by your rules. 
That's the same thing that's happened there. And it seems, if I remember, this is sort of the beginning of the uh, end of the kingdoms as far as their um, uh, solidarity, their own ability to function independently. Verse 19, now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So here again, we see an example of a nickname, a shortening of name like we read before. How um, Jerusalem get, got shortened to Jeshurun, where it's sort of a nickname of it. Now Jehoash is being shortened to Joash, but it's talking about the same person. Um, and it seems like it's wrapping up his, um, his um, reign. Verse 20, and his servants arose and formed a conspiracy and killed Joash in the house of the Milo which goes down to Selah. So um, he had sedition among him and in, in his kingdom, and it worked. They killed him. They took him out. They assassinated him. They had a conspiracy and got rid of him. Is it because he um, um, gave the gold to the Syrians to keep them from attacking him? Maybe. It seems to follow that. It follows that verse, so maybe that's why it happened. And so maybe the people weren't pleased with that. Um, just like taking money away from the military budget and giving it somewhere else, the military, who is supposed to be doing it for the honor, will get ticky, ticked off with you and mad if you touch their money. And it's not just the military, because the soldiers themselves don't actually get paid uh, like the politicians do, or the leaders do, or the investors do, or where most of the money goes, the defense contractors they don't get money like that. So it's not really on the soldiers. It's on the system that's um, just plain English corrupt. Um, Milo is, uh, is a landfill. So um, at least that's what it literally means. Um, according to the source here, that that's what the Milo is. So that's what they did. They, um, they got rid of him. They formed a conspiracy and killed the king. Um, and let's see, verse 21. For Josachar, the son of Shemith, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servant, struck him, so he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So it just named off the people who conspired against him, the seditionists, just like January 6th, the people who wanted to overthrow the government. Uh, only in this case, they did. They successfully got rid of the king that they didn't want over them anymore. And um, and he died. And let's see, and there was something else about that last verse. Huh, I don't know. Oh, I maybe was going to mention that the names again, in case you, this is your first time reading with me. Some of the names going to overlap because some of the names repeat. They may be talking about different kingdoms, but it's still the same people. So some of the names repeat. And Amaziah is who's in line for the throne next and reigning in his place once he was taken out. That's the last verse in this chapter. So that's where we'll end the reading. As always, thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth. I appreciate it and hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. I love you. See you next time. Peace be with you.